So when we say the Bible is enough, what do we mean by that? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, this is Michael Brown coming your way live from Little Rock, Arkansas. Had some wonderful ministry at Agape Church with Dr. Scott Stewart yesterday doing Radio Now, interview with Scott after that for his podcast and then fly back home. So, phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. I want to talk to you about some important theological issues today and do our best to get clarity on what can be a misunderstood subject But I want to open the phone lines to anything you want to talk to me about that ties in with the Line of Fire broadcast. So 866-34-TRUTH. As long as it's appropriate for Christian radio, give me a call. Also, I'll always put it out. You, You can never fault me for not putting this out enough. Critics are welcome to call. Those who differ with me are welcome to call. Those who believe I'm wrong on certain doctrinal points, theological points, political points, by all means, call. You say, Dr. Brown, you do that all the time. They virtually never call. Correct. You can't say we don't open the door and give the opportunity. Uh, I may weigh in on a few political things that are happening around us, but as you know, I'm not commenting every day on the Trump impeachment hearings and the rightness and wrongness of what's happening. A lot of this is going to play out like a soap opera. There's a whole lot going on between now and 2020. There's so many potential things in terms of God's purposes in all of this. I'm trying to step back, get wisdom, share some input as I see it. I, I may weigh in on a cultural controversy as well. We shall see. But I want to focus in on Scripture right now, and I want to focus in on the question of, is the Bible enough? And, and those of us who are of a Protestant expression of faith, whether you are evangelical, whether you are charismatic Pentecostal, whether you are Messianic Jewish, whether you identify as an Orthodox Presbyterian or a Southern Baptist, we would be put in the Protestant side of things. We would often talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, by which we mean that God's Word is enough for life and doctrine, that we do not need later traditions to tell us how to interpret the Word. We are not looking for additional books of Revelation. We reject that. Rather, we say the Bible is enough. But the question is, enough for what? Someone called me a couple weeks ago. And he challenged me and said, the Bible's not enough for me. I'm looking for some experience outside of Scripture. And we had very little time left in the show when I took the call. But I responded immediately by quoting Scripture, by quoting what the Bible tells us. For example, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that we have fellowship. This is the prayer that we will have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I don't have fellowship with the Bible. I have fellowship with God through the Scriptures, right? And based on the Scriptures, 
but I have fellowship with God, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I said that John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And it's ongoing in Greek, that, that we hear the voice of God, or that the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, the Holy Spirit leads us, as, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. They are children of God. So on a daily basis, the Holy Spirit is leading me to say no to the flesh, no to sin, yes to God. So I responded by saying the Bible tells me that God speaks and God moves in these different ways. And he responded, well, you're saying the Bible's not enough. I said, no, actually, you're rejecting the authority of Scripture is what you're doing. So let's say that you believe God gives you a prophetic insight as to what's going to happen in the elections. Does that mean the Bible is not enough? Does that mean you're adding to the Bible? If you say, I really encountered God in worship tonight, is that adding to the Bible. He said, why would those be adding to the Bible? The Bible has its specific role, and it is sufficient for what it does. Ah, so what is the Bible here to do? In what way is the Bible God's unique, unparalleled word, and nothing else competes with that, and nothing else is in that same category? In, in that sense, how is the Bible enough? So when I make the broad statement, the Bible is enough, the sufficiency of Scripture. Obviously, I mean enough for a particular thing, sufficient for a particular thing. So if you encounter someone that is starving, right, they, they are starving, they are dying, they need food, is the Bible enough? Well, they're not going to eat the Bible, right? The Bible tells me now to help this person and help the poor, help the needy. But the, the person can't eat the Bible. If, if you're praying for a spouse, you want to be married and have children, well, the Bible is enough. Well, the Bible tells me it's a blessing to be married. It's a blessing to have children. I'm not going to marry the Bible in that respect. Okay, my plane is late. I need to get somewhere. How am I going to get there? Okay, I'm going to have to rent a car and get over to another airport in a hurry. Well, the Bible is enough. Well, the Bible is not going to take me from one place to the other. I mean, I give thousands, millions of examples in that case that, quote, the Bible is not enough, but it it's not enough for the things it's not called to do. It's not meant to do. It's not meant to take the place of physical food that you eat. It's not meant to take the place of an airplane to, an airplane to transport you somewhere. It's not meant to take the place of, of a spouse or a child, all right? And, and the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for what the Bible does, for God's purpose for his word, it is absolutely enough. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You say, well, then, why do you pray in tongues? Because the Bible encourages this. It says, don't forbid tongues. Paul said he prayed in tongues, spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians. Paul taught that we edify ourselves and speak mysteries in the Spirit to God. These are all good things. So by praying in tongues privately, I'm strengthened and edified, and that helps me now to edify and bless you publicly. So I do it because it's scriptural. You say, well, why do you need it if you have the Bible? Because the Bible... I don't have communion with the Bible. I have communion with God through the Bible. I have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It is a relationship that I have. Look, the Bible doesn't take the place of prayer, does it? Well, I have the Bible. I don't need to pray. Who would ever think of that? No, the Bible tells you to pray, and the Bible tells you how to pray and, and to whom we should pray and what types of things we should pray. That's in the Bible, in God's Word. You say, yeah, yeah, but if you claim that the Holy Spirit spoke to you, that's adding to the Bible. Well, let's analyze that, all right? You're, you're, you have to make a major decision. You and your family are really in prayer. You have two job opportunities. One of them, you're going to have to relocate. It seems like the job of a lifetime, but you're going to have to relocate. Your kids are going to have to start a new school. You're going to have to find a new home congregation. 
but it really feels like the right thing to do in many ways. On the other hand, staying at your current job and, and now you've got an offer, a promotion there, everyone's in the same church, the same neighborhood, the same schools, and but the, the job does not have as much potential for the future. And so you really pray about it. Lord, lead us, guide us. And you talk about it as a family and you weigh the pros and cons and you get counsel from other leaders. But then in prayer one day, you just feel strongly impressed. It's time for us to move on and take this other job. So the Holy Spirit led you. Does that add to the Bible? How does that add to the Bible? In, in, in what possible case does that add to the Bible? Where does the Bible say that every person's job decision for the rest of, of, of the history of the world, all human beings on the planet, will find their specific information in the Bible? And in that case, the Bible would be trillions of pages long, all right? Where is that even hinted at? And where is that the function of God's Word? Saying, I felt led to take this particular job, does, does, does that add doctrine? No. Does that add revelation to Scripture? No. Does it, does it tell others what they should do, what they should believe? No, of course not. Now, here's something else to think about. There were many prophecies given in the Old Testament, but they weren't included in the Bible because they weren't God's word for all people for all time. They may have been a word from the Lord, but they were not the word of God, which is binding for all people for all time, right? I mean, as it's properly applied. So in, in the same in the same way, in the same way, you could you could say this in the New Testament era. Say at Corinth, there were many prophecies that were given at Corinth, many prophetic words that were given. Were they included in the Bible? No. Were they included as part of First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? No. Why not? Because they weren't scripture. Because they were words for specific situations. Could be a personal prophecy. You know, the, here let, let me ask you a question. Let's say you're praying for me and you're a friend of mine, and you call me, and you say, Mike, the Lord really laid on my heart to pray for you that I, I sense you're going to go through a, a real difficult time. We're going to go through a real difficult time, and, and uh, it's going to be a real trial these next few months, but just hang in there. It's going to pass, and, and you're going to grow in grace through it. And, and, I, and I pray, and I feel, yeah, that's true. And then, boy, it's like all hell breaks loose, but I remember that word, and it helps me get through it. And then I emerged stronger in faith. Did that prophecy add to the Bible? No, no, of course not. Does it add doctrine? Does it? No. So there may have been hundreds, thousands of prophecies spoken like that in the early church, but they're not in the Bible because they were not part of what God wanted to communicate about himself, about his truth, about how we're to live for all people. All right, so the same way that prophecies that were given in biblical times that were not included in the Bible are not part of the Bible. And prophecies that were given after the closing of the canon, we have clear records of church leaders after uh, the apostles were dead and, and after the New Testament books were written, after the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament was written. We have clear testimonies from church leaders for centuries about prophecies and things like that, and yet didn't add to the Bible? Of course not. So what we need to understand is the Bible is 100% sufficient for everything God intended it to be, and nothing can be added to it or taken away. It is God's uniquely inspired word, the word of God. We don't test it, it tests us. Everything else is tested. Everything else is tested by scripture. 
and everything else is of a totally different level. It is not inspired the same way. So even if God gave me a prophetic word for a stranger, and I said, hey, I never met you, but as I see you, I see just jumping out of, I I feel Sam is in trouble. Does that mean something? And it breaks down crying. That's my son, Sam. He's away from God. He's in trouble. Well, God sent me to tell you that we're going to pray and God's going to help him. And well, that didn't add to the Bible. That, that, it's not saying the Bible isn't enough. In fact, the Bible tells us that prophecies and, and dreams and visions are for the period of the last days, which is from the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. So that's why I wrote in the Authentic Fire book, Sola Scriptura and Therefore Charismatic. I believe in the gifts and power of the Spirit for today because the Word of God tells me they are for today. And then my experience is in harmony with Scripture. Is that making sense? All right, good question, comment. We're going to take some calls when we come back. 866-348-7884. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. Michael Brown coming away live from Little Rock, Arkansas. Phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. And may I encourage you again in the midst of the political craziness in which we live, and it's, it's, it's crazy on all fronts, all right? And it's, it's divided as much as I could ever remember in my lifetime, probably more so. When there was a vote to impeach Bill Clinton, there was much more of a partisan vote as opposed to what's happening now. So we're a deeply divided nation. The one thing we can do is pray daily for the will of God to be done. Pray daily for the purpose of God to be fulfilled. Pray daily for his kingdom to come. Pray daily for God to bring about his purpose, his plan in the elections and for America. He is infinitely ahead of us in his planning, in his thinking, and that's why we can often be very short-sighted. You know, as a nation, we will sometimes go to war or, or take out a particular political leader because in the short term, it's the better case scenario, but then that opens up some kind of void or creates some other situation or we work with one organization which ends up working against us. You know, for example, in Afghanistan, and Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. So Russia's the bad guys, so you support the Afghanistan freedom fighters, the Mujahideen, and, and then they turn out to be radical Islamic enemies. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. There's subdivisions of the groups and peoples involved. But God's not like that. God, in that sense, has an infinite chess plan that began before the, the beginning of time, and he's working towards something of great eternal value. So it just helps us to bow down before the throne of God, to, to worship him, to settle our hearts when you're all uh, annoyed and aggravated because the news cycle, whether it's reporting on, on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or uh, whoever it is, whatever the news outlet is, and you're frustrated and, and you talk to people and they seem to have such strong views and they don't seem to be open to reason and, and, and they can't get their point across to you, good to step back and worship and bow down before God and recognize the greatness of our God 
as important as America is, America is another nation that is a drop in the bucket in terms of God's awesome creation, and yet he cares deeply for the people of America and the people of this world. All right, I've, I got a ton more things to talk with you about on this Monday, November 4th. Tomorrow's election day, so wherever there are elections in your area, that you can get involved in, get educated, and get involved. But a bunch more things to talk about. I want to go to the phones first. 866-34-TRUTH, starting in Greensboro, North Carolina. DR, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. Yes, sir. Um, I'm not quite sure if my question is, if it exactly ties into the context of, of your original question, but I do think it's relatable, and it's it's a question, or it's an issue uh, where I've been getting quite a bit of criticism from other uh, Christians, some Christian leaders as well. And it's kind of my, my thought process toward just sharing the gospel, which is I kind of take a, a gospel centered approach. Um, when I, when I read areas of scripture, like second Timothy three sixteen and 17, how it talks about, you know, all scripture is profitable for this and that. Um, some may interpret that, you know, the word prof- profitable to mean that it is like beneficial, but I kind of take it to mean that, Scripture, um, God's Word, in a way, is like kind of the source for changing the hearts of men, as opposed to, you know, us trying to do it in the context of, you know, when we add the social justice movement in there. And I I kind of find that um, in my community, the African-American community, we—I'm trying to articulate this um, well—we try to change—it seems like we try to change the hearts of the people— for God instead of allowing God to do that. And I've gotten criticized because I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, as a person develops their relationship with the Lord and they become a more mature believer, God, God through his word, will begin to transform the heart of the person. Whereas my, my counterparts, they will often say, well, that's not enough. And we got to tell, you know, white people to do this. And we got to tell them to do that. And I'm just kind of like, well, I, I'd rather just give them the word of God and just minister to them and allow and allow the Holy Spirit to do that. So my question is, with that approach, where are the gaps within my theology that maybe I'm uh, maybe not sensitive enough to? to? If, I hope that made sense. Yes, 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 it did. And I appreciate the humility of your question uh, and the way you're framing it. Uh, let me say where I agree with you and where I, I could add a little bit to it. Of course, it's only the gospel by the Holy Spirit that can ultimately change people's hearts and lives. And that changing an opinion a little bit, influencing thinking a little bit can only go so far. So right now in America, there is no political or social band-aid that we can put on the problems. There needs to be a gospel-based awakening, reformation, changing hearts, changing lives, Christians living like Christians, backsliders coming back to the Lord, uh, the world, people in the world coming to know the Lord, and, and then people being discipled. It's the only way change can come. At the same time, when someone is becoming a disciple, aren't we teaching them principles of justice and principles of God's heart? Sometimes it happens supernaturally, right? That the moment you're saved, you realize certain things are wrong, okay? You've been a racist, and you, you get saved, and you wake up, and you realize, uh, what is this? I'm, I'm not loving others the way Jesus loves them, and he died for everyone just the same. But in other times, we're saved in a certain environment, and the environment is so wrong. You had sincere Christians at the founding of America, and some of them were, were slaveholders, 
and they didn't realize the depth of evil of it. And yet they were Christians. And mm-hmm. so they, they had to be awakened because they grew up with it. It was just part of life, part of culture. So that's where I want to add in that we're always seeking to influence hearts and minds. For example, I want people who are pro-abortion and so-called pro-choice from the most radical feminist to the, to the most passive person about it. I want their hearts and minds to be changed. I want them to become pro-life. Ultimately, the best thing is for them to be born again and know the Lord and, and grow in the Word of God. However, if I can show someone an ultrasound, and that ultrasound is going to change their thinking. So uh, I, I, I show them an ultrasound. They're not saved yet. They're not born again yet. They don't believe the Bible is God's Word, but they suddenly have an appreciation for the reality of the life in the womb. That's a plus to me. If, if I can help a white supremacist see the evil of his ways and, and recognize his black neighbor as a fellow human being and equal, even if he's not saved, that's a positive. So I don't, I don't want to make my entire gospel emphasis one of social justice, be it fighting for pro-life, be it fighting against racism, fighting against injustice, pushing back against radical gay activism. But I don't want to exclude it as if it is something totally unrelated. So what I would say is the most important thing is to major on the majors, to major on conversion, discipleship, life in the spirit, and and living lives that set excellent examples. You know, when Reinhard Bonnke did his gospel crusades in Africa, he would would go out of his way, because he was initially based in South Africa, to do everything he could to, to fight apartheid. He came from Germany to South Africa and was shocked by the system and found many sincere Christians in it, but just very blind uh, in their thinking. So when he would hold the minister's conference, he would treat black and white exactly the same. He would put them in the same housing. He would have them sharing life together. He would, he would share the pulpit with a black minister. So he was fighting against apartheid while majoring on the preaching of the gospel. So if you don't make it strict categories and you make it the emphasis is the gospel, the emphasis is transformation of hearts and lives. And now, through interaction, through dialogue, let's see what we can do to change people's thinking. Some of the, the champions of the pro-life movement turned away from abortion before they were saved, saw the evil of abortion before they were saved, and then came to faith, and then they became real warriors. So I would say major on the majors, but don't exclude others. They, they have a useful function as well in the larger uh, focus of, of cultural transformation. Does that make sense to you? Yes, sir, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, look, if you go back to William Wilberforce and when they were fighting against slavery and the slave trade in Europe, and, and this is just such a way of life in the UK, just what you did, and this is how the economy ran and so on. So they, they tried to, to message. I mean, they had the understanding then, okay, let's, let's get a picture of a black man, an African, in chains, basically saying, aren't I your brother? And just, just change thinking so, and change laws. So change hearts, change laws. But ultimately, the lion's share of it has to be the gospel changing people's lives and thinking. So, hey, DR, keep up the good work. And, and let's be sure that we preach the gospel to the lost. I, I, I just tweeted this out 
uh, earlier today. Someone had asked me about substitutionary atonement, and I just tweeted this out. Substitutionary atonement simply states this. We sinned, Jesus died in our place. We were guilty, he took our punishment. That's the justice of God and the mercy of God. That's the gospel. That's ultimately the hope of America, the gospel of Jesus lived out by God's people and preached by God's people in the life and power of the Spirit. So they hear the message and God moves in the hearts and minds of people. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be divided. We're going to continue to tear each other apart. We're going to, and we're always going to be divided on some level until Jesus comes. We, un- we understand that. That's part of the gospel. It brings division. But we can see a lot more captives set free, a lot more lives healed. America can export good more than it exports bad. But that's only going to be through a massive great awakening. And that's where we're on our face is saying, Lord, start a fresh work in me. Start a fresh work in me. Rekindle my first love. God's faithful. God will do it. All right. We'll be back. More of your calls. And should rich Christians give away all their money? It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, just a heads up. If you are in Kansas City, I'm doing a three-day eschatology conference together with Dr. Craig Keener, Dr. Sam Storms, and others from Mike Bickle. So if you're anywhere near Kansas City, it should be a really rich conference, a lot of interaction a lot of getting into the scriptures together. So that's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week. And then Saturday, uh, is it uh, Newton, Newton, North Carolina? Yeah, a conference with Jeremiah Johnson. I'm not sure what I'm speaking on yet, but that'll be this coming Saturday. It's all on my itinerary. Please join us if you're anywhere near these meetings. And then, God willing, the weekend after, so not this weekend, but weekend after in Jacksonville, Florida, for an Israel and End Time Revival conference with my friend Ron Cantor and Usher and Trader and John Burnus and others, and then preaching for Pastor Stovall Williams, all at Celebration Church in Jacksonville. So we'll be on the road a lot these next few weeks. I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas right now. Yeah, isn't it amazing that President Clinton and Hillary Clinton came from Arkansas and governor and then presidential candidate Mike Huckabee came from Arkansas, I'm sure many others as well. All right, if you have a question of any kind, like we do on Friday, you've got questions, we've got answers. I I try to open the phone lines extra days when I can, 866-348-7884. And we're back on YouTube after being banned because of a ridiculous, inequitous act by YouTube. We're back on YouTube. And, you know, you say, well, why do you use the platform? There are other platforms just because we can reach a lot of people there. Because a lot of people that watch and comment there don't agree. And many others do agree, but that's how they found out about me. I mean, wherever we go around America, around the world, at airports, people come up to me, oh, I watch you on YouTube. I love your debates, or I love watching you on YouTube. So as, uh, our whole goal is to reach people. Our whole goal is to impact people. So as long as that door is open, we want to walk through it. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, I have a question for you. If you are a wealthy person, 
and you get to, let's let's say you built your wealth in in fair ways. You didn't build your wealth by saying uh, being a drug lord. You didn't build your wealth by selling people into sex slavery. You didn't build your wealth by having a company that took advantage of people and, and ripped people off of savings and you, you found a, a legal way to do unethical things. You're just you're hardworking, very successful, maybe very worldly, maybe very materialistic, maybe your job and money, those things were gods in your life, but you get saved. You get wonderfully, gloriously saved. Is, is it now a true test of your Christianity to see if you will give away your money? Is it a true test of your Christianity to see if you will say, you've got a beautiful home and, and three beautiful cars, you know, for one that you just use for special driving and then another for your wife and another one for you? And is it a real test of your faith to see if you sell those cars is it a real test of your faith to see if you, you, you now tie the rest of your life instead of giving 10%, you give 50%? Is that a test of your faith? Or is that nobody else's business? And no one has the right to judge the condition of your heart based on what you do outwardly or not. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you some scripture in terms of my thoughts on this, but I was forwarded in an article by a Christian leader basically saying, well, we'll see if Kanye West is really serious. We'll see if he gives his money away. We'll see what happens to his money. Now, obviously, he made his money with his, his music and his ideology getting put out in music form, probably some other ways, with his, his sneaker line with, with Nike, right? Uh, so uh, <clears throat> obviously, a lot of his music was not righteous music. And, and godly music and profane filth and a lot of the ideology wrong and things like that. And, and sure, he'd be the first to say it now. But it's not like he made all the money through overtly sinning. Like I said, a drug lord trafficking drugs and getting rich off of that or some scam where, where you're, you're stealing money from people and getting their life savings. And, and so it, it wasn't that. But someone said, well, we'll see what kind of Christian he is by what he does with his money. Is that the real test? Is that how you can judge whether someone who professes to be a Christian, now they're, they're wealthy, they get saved, let's see what they do with their money. You say, well, the rich young ruler, that settles it. When, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in, in Matthew 19 in parallels and, and, and asks him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Right? Love your neighbors. You know, you, you know the commandments. Love your neighbors yourself. And he says, well, I've kept all these all my life. Sure. I mean, I, that, I'm, I'm a religious Jew. I've kept all these. And Jesus says, and, and there was Jewish teaching based on Leviticus 18, that you live by observing the commandments. If a man does these, he will live by them. And some Jewish tradition said live forever. So you have eternal life. So he says, well, I've always done that. Then Jesus said, well, you're lacking one thing. Sell your possessions give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he, he goes away very sad because he had great possessions. So what, what was Jesus showing him? He was showing him that he really hadn't kept the commandments because he was covetous, he was greedy, and he didn't love his neighbors himself. But did he call everyone to sell their possessions, give to the poor? Well, he said, well, Luke 12, he told his, his, his apostles, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Right. But is that a New Testament command for all believers? That the moment you get saved, you sell your possessions, give to the poor. Well, Luke 14, 33, unless you forsake everything you have, you can't be my disciple. So 
is that what actually happens? Take, for example, Luke 5, where Jesus calls Matthew, Levi, to follow him. He's a tax collector. And he's obviously made money in inequitous ways. But later that day, they have a feast at his house. So he gets up, leaves everything, but he still has a house. right? He hasn't sold his house and given it away. Zacchaeus, in Luke the 19th chapter, Luke chapter 19, what happens with him is that Jesus just says, I've got to have a meal with you today, calls him out by name, has a meal with him, and he says, this day I give half my money to the poor, and if I've, if I've taken any money by extortion, I'm going to pay back fourfold. Some people say, yeah, but it just wiped him out doing that. Uh, and Jesus says, salvation's come to this, this house today. This man was a son of Abraham. That was his repentance having encountered the Lord. But there is not a New Testament mandate on every wealthy person or every person who gets saved to sell all their possessions and give to the poor. The, may, the Lord may speak that to someone. Uh, there's a friend of mine who on several occasions, the Lord told him to give his car away, and he gave it away when he just had one vehicle. I believe on another occasion, the Lord told him to sell what he had and give it away, and he did that. And, and several times over his life, he was called to give sacrificially. And now he, he pastors probably the most giving church in the world and, and is financially blessed himself, but he remains a giver and lives by the same principles of, of generosity and giving. So there is not an explicit New Testament command for every single believer that you must sell everything you have and give it away when you get saved. Of course, if that was the case, you'd now have massive economic crisis wherever the gospel went because everyone would be selling what they had, giving it away. Now you have no support. You have no, <laughs> no way to live. And, you know, you're going to go to the other. Someone before they become a Christian say, take me in because you still have stuff. We get rid of all of ours. Obviously, that was not the case. And the pooling of resources is done when there are special needs. But that was not always the case where everyone pooled all their resources. You say, well, show me that in the Bible. Give me scripture for that. Well, absolutely. Uh, let's take a look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, we have warnings throughout the Bible about covetousness. Uh, Paul teaches that covetousness, greed, is a form of idolatry. And, and throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we have warnings about putting our trust in earthly things, laying up our treasures on this earth, or, or the aspect of, of having uh, the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil, or, or seeking to get rich through the gospel. These are corrupt and sinful things that Scripture rebukes. And Timothy is told in, in 1 Timothy 6.11, you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So, so you flee from the love of money. You flee from trying to use the gospel for financial riches. That's, that's the carnal prosperity message that we categorically reject. But, but look at this, 1 Timothy 6, 17. This is the most explicit word to rich Christians anywhere in the Bible. And it doesn't lay a guilt trip on them. I'm going to read a couple of verses in a moment. Some of you remember the classic book by Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in a Hungry World. That was the title of it, I believe, Rich Christians in a Hungry World, and he really challenged Christians in the West to live differently. He challenged Christians in the West to, to look at, at uh, rich Christians in, an, in the age of hunger. That was the title of, of the Cider book. He really challenged Christians to look at things 
differently. Uh, the subtitle, Moving from Affluence to Generosity. And it was, it was a book that on the one hand really ministered and really said, hey, live in the light of eternity and, and really help many. But others said, you are, you are just laying a guilt trip on people and you are stopping people from being productive and business people from being prosperous and you're putting a roof on things and, and things like that. So there was a response book written. Was it David Chilton that, that wrote it about guilty Christians? And it was a response to Ronald Sider. And, and of course, the Sider book uh, got much bigger circulation and is better known, I would say, to this day. Um, but Paul does not lay a guilt trip on believers for being rich. He doesn't say it's sinful to be rich. He doesn't say it's sinful to, to have possessions. This is Paul's counsel. First Corinthians, excuse me, First Timothy chapter six. Command those who are rich in this present world, which for many of us in the West compared to the rest of the world, that applies to us even in you know, middle-class America. We, or upper lower class America, we'd be considered rich compared to the rest of the world or, or some of the rest of the world. But he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. So don't be arrogant. Fine, you have a bigger house than someone else. You have a nicer car than someone else. You have a bigger bank account. You make more in your job. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth, he says, which is so uncertain and this is a theme throughout the Bible, that riches can come and go. You can have it one day and it's gone the next, right? Stock market goes up and down. Real estate goes up and down. The thing you've been working on for years, you know, that just gets stolen or, so, you know, a project that can be here today, gone tomorrow. So don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but rather tell them to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It, listen, it doesn't make you holier to have a car that breaks down six times on the way to work every day. So you have to leave an hour early because it's going to break down so many times. And, and, and instead of spending that hour with your family or in prayer or helping your neighbor, you're, you got to get there early because your own car keeps breaking down. That, that doesn't make you any holier. And, and if God blesses you with a better car so you can get to work on time and have that extra hour for others, praise God. Wonderful. That's a good thing. But put your hope in God. Pastor Carter Conlon no. reminds us that when we don't understand or comprehend all that's taking place in our world, we have a God who does. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends. Sorry I talked right up into the break. We had a computer glitch because of which my normal music didn't come in, because of which I kept talking even when you couldn't hear me anymore. But let me review this. Paul does not tell wealthy Christians to feel guilty for being wealthy, nor does he tell them that they're required to sell everything they have and give it away to the poor. He doesn't say that. This is his counsel, all right? And, and it's wise counsel. Command those, so it's command, strong. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, 
So again, with riches, you think, I'm better than somebody. Look, my house is so much nicer. You live over there. It's just nobody. Don't be arrogant. That's silly. That, that is very, very carnal and very superficial. Don't be arrogant, nor put your hope in wealth. Rather, which is so uncertain, but rather, he says, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The Lord's had to remind me over the years, hey, if, if I just want to bless you, be blessed. Don't feel guilty about it. If I want to bless you with this, be, be blessed. I'm not pursuing earthly riches. My heart is not set on earthly riches. My life does not consist in earthly riches. You know, people have had to tell me, you, you need a new car. You need to get a new car. You drive. Uh, someone gave me a car years ago, and it was just this little thing to get around in. And he said, you still have that? He said, you got to get So It's not like I'm, my whole life consists that I have to have new, better things. But sometimes when God blesses with me, uh, me with it, I'm thinking, well, I shouldn't really have it. Said, no, I'm blessing you with it. It's fine. Be blessed with it. So God does provide us with everything for our enjoyment. So whether it's a beautiful sunset or you get to break away with your family for a fun vacation, whether it's having a a nice meal with relatives on Thanksgiving, hey, rejoice, enjoy it, praise God for it. But your life does not consist in what you eat or what you drink or what you own. Your life consists in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's the calling. That's the measure. Now, how is that going to work out? Well, God knows each heart and each life. But it should be that those who have been given more and entrusted with more, in turn, give more themselves, in turn, are generous. Now, there are individuals, and you might fault them, for being well, you have what do you need a million dollars a year salary for? Well, it could be in the world in which they live and the people that God calls them to reach and interact with, that's what they need, just like you need 20,000 a year and someone else needs 100,000 a year. And someone's got to reach the wealthy people and somebody's got to live among them and work among them. But what if this person gives away? a year of their million-dollar salary. And you make $20,000, but you give away $50 a year. Who's more generous in God's sight? Well, obviously, the one giving 30% of their salary. On the flip side, you might be making a million dollars a year, and you give $100,000 away to charitable causes or to gospel work, and you think, man, I'm giving away $100,000. Here's this person makes $20,000 a year. They're giving away five hundred. dollars That's nothing. In God's sight, that five hundred is a lot bigger than that 20000 because it's proportional. We give from what we have rather than what we don't have. So there is a command to do good and be rich in good deeds. And there are some wealthy people that I know, don't know many that are really wealthy, but some that I know are extraordinarily generous and extraordinarily gracious, and they love to help others. And them having a Mercedes-Benz is no different than you having a beat-up old Toyota Corolla. In other words, it's just just a vehicle for them. They get around in it. But at the country club, where they hang out with friends and share the gospel with these other wealthy people, that's the car they're going to drive up in. And here's the thing that's interesting. 
maybe they get to lead these other wealthy people to the Lord, and these wealthy people now pour into gospel mission, and it affects you directly. You're on the front lines overseas praying in funds, and one of these wealthy pers- people gets saved, and now they support you, and they help you reach people around the world. It's, it's just the way God works it out. We're all in different places and different settings, but this is the command. Command them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's the command. In this way, in this way, Paul writes, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is really true life, the life that is truly life. So as they have an eternal perspective, as they realize that they're just passing through this world and that God has blessed them in these earthly ways, let them have that perspective that now colors the way they live so they don't lead covetous lives, they don't need greedy lives. And look, I have met and know some rich people, uh, people who are very, very wealthy, and they are generous, and they are not caught up with the things of this world. And then I know some poor people, and they are very covetous and very caught up with the things of this world. It's a condition of the heart. But often we know that those who have much in this world don't hear the gospel as readily as those who have very little. You know, just think of this. You go preach the gospel to someone who's just fighting for day-to-day sustenance. They have no hope in this world. They have very little pleasure in this world. They have no sense of future in this world. All they can look forward to is just surviving another day. And you tell them about God's great love. You tell them how Jesus shed his blood for them. You tell them how he took their punishment on the cross. You tell them how they can have eternal life and become children of the Father and enjoy true riches through a relationship with him, eternal riches through a relationship with him, forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God and joy and peace. Wow, what wonderful news. That's, that's incredible. And, and the poor will often be the first ones to hear the gospel because they are less encumbered with the things of this world. On the flip side, you may talk to a wealthy business person, like, I don't have time for God. And I, I'm doing great in life. My kids are doing great. They're going to great schools, and they got great futures. And I, what do I need God for? And they have this mistaken view of even who God is and what purposes are. And, and that's why James Jacob says that, that the poor are, are, are often the ones chosen by God to receive the gospel and, and the ones who are often the first to hear. And in many countries, that has to be overcome because the gospel is first received in the poor communities, and then it becomes known as the poor man's religion. And it's you know, like in, in India, for example, it's the poor man's religion, the higher caste. They, you know, they're, they're, they're Hindu, and, and they reject this, and they, they don't need this, this poor man's religion. And you have to overcome these wrong conceptions. But the Bible does not say it is a sin to be rich. It is a sin to covet earthly things. It is a sin to covet earthly wealth. It is a sin to put your identity in earthly things rather than in the Lord. And it is a sin to be selfish and greedy. But it is not a sin to be rich. And there are many people who are rich because of the blessing of God. There are business people that I know that that put biblical ethics to practice. Here, what does Proverbs tell you will happen to the diligent versus the lazy? to the generous versus the stingy. As a general rule, the diligent will be more financially prosperous than the lazy. 
and the generous will be more financially prosperous than the stingy. At the same time, those who are living by biblical principles are not putting their hope in earthly riches. They're putting their hope in God. They are not ultimately trying to store up earthly treasures, but heavenly treasures. And their goal is to see Jesus glorified, and they want to use their wealth for the good of the gospel. But let's not judge by exteriors. Let's not put people under pressure to conform to what you think is right or I think is right. Well, for me, a house this size is the biggest uh, uh, Christian shit out. Well, it's your, then you live by that. You live by that. You don't judge someone else by that. The, the Bible does not give us those parameters, but it gives us guidelines for living. And, and here's the other thing. There are a lot of people who are generous, but they don't let others know it. And, and, and look, there's the story that was told in a Jewish community. That there was one guy who was a, a miser and the nastiest guy. When people would come by his house and say, hey, we're, we're collecting charity for this cause or that cause or for this children's school or to help the poor in the community, the guy would send them away. Don't come to my door. They were afraid to do it, but because he was so wealthy, they would still come to his door and he would always send them away. Don't come to my door. When he died, suddenly there was a massive gap, a massive, massive gap. The schools couldn't meet their budget, the children's schools, the, the, the work for the poor. It suffered terribly. The money just wasn't there. They found out that it was this guy that was giving the money secretly, but he sent everyone away, giving them the impression that he was greedy because he didn't want anyone to know he was the one giving. It's an extreme story, but it's quite an illustration. And I read it as if it was true. I mean, God knows whether it's true or not. But you don't know what's going on in someone's heart or life. And, and it's not up to us to monitor everybody's giving. So let's pray for those who are wealthy, that they would have a heart to love God, a heart to store up eternal treasure, and a heart of generosity. And those may be the very people that help pour into gospel work and humanitarian work around the world that, that save thousands and millions of lives. Think of some, a rich donor who helps underwrite the unplanned movie. How many babies is that going to save? So let's not try to bring people down and attack them for being wealthy. Let's pray that they'll have God's heart in the midst of their wealth. By the way, save you a few dollars. Go to Amazon.com, Jezebel's War with America, hardcover. It's on sale right now. Save you a few dollars. <laughs> 